going to go deep today. I'm just going to give you a little warning. I, did, I should have warned the first service. I didn't. Uh, but uh, we're in this book called Genesis. And so just by way of review thus far, uh, Genesis chapter 1 opens with a song. We call this the song of creation. Uh, and it's really a beautiful song about God first and foremost. It's this God who takes on the tohu vevohu, that gray nothingness, formlessness, and, and creation then as, as what we uh, say to say what God is doing in Genesis, Genesis 1, it's really depicted as an act of war. It's the king of the universe unleashing his kingdom on that tohu vevohu upon the chaos. And that kingdom uh, we see consists of his spirit, his word, his king, all moving uh, into the chaos and bringing about light and order and beauty and galaxies and skies, seas, lakes, rivers, forests, fields, flowers, gardens, these dazzling creatures that fly and swim, land creatures. And it says they are all created according to their kind. God said it was good. It was good. And then God caps all of this off by creating creatures in accordance to his kind, creatures made like God to be kings and queens, to steward this universe that God just created. And as awesome as that is, if that isn't enough, then God gives us a second creation story where this God who in Genesis 1, the first story, is this God who's so beyond us and over everything that he makes, uh, now is a God who comes close, who draws near, who's intimate, who makes his home right in the heart of the world that he makes. And that's what we see in the second creation story in Genesis 2. Uh, it gets zoomed in now and it focuses on the apex of God's creation. These godlike creatures uh, that God's hands, they literally go in the clay and 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 these little miniatures of God himself are formed and then God breathes his breath into these creatures and they become a living thing as God breathes his very soul into them. And we learn that God created them male and female, man and woman, and then how he unites them in the covenant of marriage and then how he places them in the very space where God makes his home in the garden and there. Not only are they king and queens to steward uh, the universe that God's entrusted to them, but now they're also called to be priests. And here's what Genesis 2 wants us to see, and we have to see this, is how that garden is everything to creation. And first and most importantly, it's because God makes his home in that garden. But also in the garden is the tree of life. And that tree of life represents God. It represents his presence and, and all the, the, the energy and life that emanates in the world derives itself from that tree. So without that tree, the lights of the universe would go out, the world would go dark and it would descend into chaos again. Not only does the garden have the tree of life, but it also has that river of life that, that flows uh, in the river and then flows out and makes itself into four rivers going to the four corners of the earth. And that river of life is far more than H2O. It's living water. It's Maim Kaim. And Maim Kaim in the Bible, too, always represents the life and the presence of God. 
This is why throughout the story, whenever God makes his home with his people on earth, there's always this river that flows out of his palace. And in fact, even when you get to that final temple, that final home of God that's depicted in Ezekiel 40 to 47, you have this river that's flowing out of it and everything that this river touches, it springs forth to life. In fact, when it hits the desert, uh, it just blooms into God's glory and that desert becomes the garden of God. That's why throughout the biblical story, this river, this river of life, this Maim Kaim is also always attached to God's people. We're called to be this river to our world. Our world is a desert. And this is why uh, Isaiah 42 says, each person will be like a shelter from the wind, a refuge from the storm, like a stream of water in the desert. Like Ben and Carrie's, just Maim Kaim, going into the barren places of our world, offering the life of God. And so what we see, too, in this second creation account are Adam and Eve, the human, not just made to be kings and queens, but they're also made to be priests. And a priest is someone who is to guard and to protect and to nurture that garden with their life and to, to bring that garden to the four corners of the world because that garden is the life. It's, it's the life of God that, that is to bear upon the whole world. That's why the garden is everything to the world. And this is the tragedy then of Genesis 3. We learned last week that that serpent uh, kind of just slithers his way into that garden with those cunning words. Did God really say that? I find it really interesting today that Christian scholars more and more, they, they... believe that this serpent is just a reptile. (laughs) And this church actually lets the whole Bible interpret the Bible. And so we know that the rest of the Bible makes it very clear that this is more than a reptile. I mean, there's texts like Ezekiel 28 that describe this serpent. You were the seal of perfection. You were full of wisdom. You were perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you. You were anointed as that guardian cherub. For so I, God, ordained you to that end. You were even on the holy mount of God in the heavenlies, and you walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day that you were created until wickedness was found in you. And then through your widespread cunning, You were filled with violence. Violence in the Hebrew is Hamas. So I drove you in disgrace from my holy mount, and I expelled you, you guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. So we get hints and flavors of of this serpent there. At the end of our Bible, in Revelation 12, it says this, Then war broke out in heaven, and Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and so they lost their place in the heaven. The great dragon then was hurled down, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And then Jesus talking about him in John 8, when he says, you belong to your father, the devil, 
and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And that's exactly how he comes into the garden in Genesis 3, cunning and crafty. And here's the thing about Satan's lies. They're noble lies. Very noble. Noble in that on the surface, they look and sound so good. That his way is the better way. The more just way. The more loving way. That God is so limiting and repressive. And this is exactly how Satan comes to Eve. He comes to her with this secret Knowledge, because I think you could say this. Satan is the first Gnostic. And you ask, what's a Gnostic? Uh, A Gnostic is simply someone who thinks that they're part of this secret club, who have this special secret knowledge that all the rest of humanity lacks. This is exactly how Satan comes to Eve, with this secret knowledge, inviting her into a secret club that promises so much, that makes God look so silly. In fact, I was thinking about this this week. Uh, So much of our world today is run by Gnostics, from politicians to professors to our propaganda gurus, this secret club of elites who think that they have this secret knowledge, knowledge to human flourishing and social order and the secrets to how you and I can reach our potential and realize all of our dreams. They sugarcoat, they spin, they soften, They falsely call us to this breezy, beachy life. And they say, but you know, for a few bad apples in the world, everything is okay, I'm okay, you're okay. And you know, all of this sounds so noble, doesn't it? But it's just a lie. We're not okay. Are you kidding? And what we're gonna see today is that the way that God is gonna deal with Adam and Eve It's going to stand in total contrast to this noble lie of Satan. God is not safe. He doesn't sugarcoat reality. He doesn't spin this to kind of somehow soften the blow. He tells it like it is. And why does he do that? Because he loves these creatures his hands have made. And last week we looked at what sin is how sin entered the garden, how Adam and Eve succumbed to it. Today we're going to look at sin's consequences. Let's stand and read read our text from Genesis chapter 3. Starting with verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man, Where are you? The man answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from that tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, Well, that woman that you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. So then the Lord God said to the woman, well, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, well, that serpent deceived me and so I ate. And so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have 
done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl in your belly. You will eat the dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will crush your head and he will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe with painful labor. You will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit from the tree from which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you through painful toil. You'll eat food from it all the days of your life. It'll produce thorns and thistles for you, and you'll eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you'll eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you are taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return." Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and then live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden, cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's word. You can be seated. So our text today begins, verse 8, when, with God coming and, and walking in the garden. And they hear the sound of God walking. Now, walking in our, our Bible is a word that always symbolizes more than just a physical activity. It it, it symbolizes relationship. And this week, we lost another. (laughs) We lost a beautiful woman, Donna Fisher. She went to be with the Lord. She lived a beautiful life. In this last uh, year in particular, with all her suffering, uh, her life was just a, a testimony to God and, and the faith. It was just stunningly beautiful. John, her husband, also walked alongside of her in such a beautiful way. And it's just amazing uh, when people are in this journey and, and, and to see people walk the way that John and Donna walked. Linda Rorsma, she just walked with her along, along right next to Donna's side in her suffering. And just think about how we, how we put this, okay? Did Linda literally walk physically next to her? No, did, did John, when we say her hus- husband walked alongside his wife, uh, what we're talking about is, is this deep, deep relationship that they were in with Donna and now to think that Donna walks with Jesus. So when our text says that God comes walking in the garden, uh, he's seeking them out. He's seeking relationship. Where are you? He says. And this isn't God like wondering, like where in the garden are you right now? I can't see you. Now, this is God asking, what happened? Something tragic has happened. And God is coming to talk with them, to restore the relationship. Let's talk about this 
horrible thing that's happened. Come, let us reason together, though your sins be as scarlet. May they be white as snow. Verse 10 of our text says that Adam and Eve, they hide. I think you could say that this is really the essence of sin. Sin is running from a God who wants relationship with us. It's, it's thinking that, that we can do life without God or that life could be better without God. That's the essence of sin. And here's one of those moments in the story where I, I, I just can't help but wonder some things. Uh, would, would things have gone differently if Adam and Eve in this moment had taken full responsibility for their mis- mistake, if, if they had just owned it and, and repented of it? God, God, we're so sorry. Would you have mercy on us? Would you forgive us? Hey, what if the, in this moment they just... They immersed themselves in that river of life and, and, and did mikvah and, and repented of their sin. You know, we'll, we'll never know the answer to, the, to these wonderings because in verse 12, what we have is Adam blames his wife. And not only does he blame his wife, he says, the wife that, that you gave me. Are you kidding me, Adam? Like blaming his wife, blaming God. Then it's Eve's turn, and Eve blames the snake, and they're throwing each other under the bus to justify themselves, and now we see sin starting to spin out of control. What's the result of all this? Verse 23 So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So Adam and Eve are, first of all, they're sent from the garden. They're sent out. And then this word in verse 24, if you see it, uh, it says that uh, they were banished or, or driven out of the garden. In, in Hebrew, this word literally means divorced. And that's really what's gone on here now. Heaven is divorced from earth. Creation is now divorced from the garden and the world is cut off from God. And Adam and Eve are driven out. They're expelled. They're cut off from the garden. And not only then, we have to see this, not only do they lose God, but they're also, they just lost home. They're homeless. And why? Sin. Just take a second right now just to even think about home and what home is. I mean, even if you come from a bad home, we still know deep in our hearts what home is supposed to be, that home is this place where we're nurtured and we're known and we're loved and cared for. It's the place where we are to thrive and if we make mistakes or blow it, where we are restored. And the fact that Adam and Eve are are sent out, I mean, don't just envision in your mind that they're Uh, sent out of this tropical paradise, they just became homeless. They just lost their home. They are now strangers and aliens in the world. This is a picture we see a lot these days, isn't it, of uh, these refugees and and, and people, strangers, immigrants, people who have lost their homes, and many times a painful picture. Uh, it's, It's a devastating picture, something that ought to break our heart. 
Listen to what C.S. Lewis says in The Weight of Glory. He says, the inconsolable secret in every one of us, the secret that hurts us so much, the ache that we all feel, is nothing more than our longing to be reunited with something in the universe that we all now feel cut off from. It's that longing to be on the inside of some door which we've always seen from the outside and that longing is no mere, uh, no mere neurosis. It's actually the truest index of our real condition. And then Lewis ends with this. He says, this is the inconsolable secret of every soul that the door in which we've been knocking all our lives will open at last. So whether you can articulate this as well as C.S. Lewis, it doesn't really matter. Here's the, here's the fact that we were not made for this world as it is right now. We were made for a garden for Eden for God to walk with him in the cool of the day. And C.S. Lewis is absolutely right. We are on the outside now. And we are all knocking, trying to get back in. And Genesis 3 is here to teach us that as Adam's offspring... This is the human condition for every human since Adam. We're all estranged. We're all homeless. We're all alienated from the place for which we were made for that garden. As Romans 5 says, through Adam, sin entered the world, and that sin then spread to everyone, bringing death. And so Adam's sin has been passed into all of us. We are all, as the Bible says, born into sin, and this sin is no small thing. It's, it's a malignant tumor. It's infecting every descendant of Adam, which is why theologians talk about this as original sin. Now, our culture today rejects this doctrine. I think it's, it's too hurtful. It's, it, it, it's too unsafe <laughs> to, to, to swallow this pill of, of, of original sin because we so badly want to believe that I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay, everything will be okay. But that's just the noble lie. I mean, listen to what G.K. Chesterton, one of the greatest thinkers of the 20th century, writes about original sin. He says, Christianity preaches this unattractive idea of original sin. But he said, but when we actually wait for the results of the doctrine of original sin... We find that the results are pathos and brotherhood and a thunder of laughter and compassion. For only with original sin can we have compassion on the beggar in distrust for the king. And I want you to hear a, a, a few things that he's saying in this. First of all, he's saying that the doctrine of original sin, it levels the playing field. It tells us with both the beggar and the king that what lies underneath that person is still the same. That we're all infected with this tumor that in Adam, we're all sinners. And Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who lived during communist uh, Soviet Union, much of it in a gulag in a, in a Russian prison, he wrote these uh, infamous words. He said that line that separates good and evil, it doesn't run through states. Uh, it's not between classes of people. It's not between races. It's not between political parties. He says that line that separates good and evil runs right through every human heart. And see, to, to really know this actually destroys all self-righteousness. 
Because when I know this in my heart, I can't then look at anyone and ever think that I'm any better. I, I, I can't even judge another person because I don't care who I'm looking at. I have what they have and they have what I have. We're all in the same boat. That's why Chesterton said this doctrine should produce a brotherhood. We're all the same. We're all, we're all dealing with the same disease. We're all homeless. We're all cut off. We're all alienated from the garden. The king and the beggar in this are brothers. They're the same. So what we have in Genesis 3, it spells out our homeless fallen condition and all of its implications. Let me start at verses 17 and 18. It says, Cursed is the ground because of you through painful toil. You'll eat from it all the days of your life and it will produce thorns and thistles for you and you'll eat the plants of the, of the field by the sweat of your brow. You will eat your food. And first, this, this alienation uh, starts with we're cut off from the actual environment that we're made. We're not in the garden anymore. And this natural world that we now live in is infected with the disease too. As our text says, there are now thorns and thistles. And work is now hard. It's laborious. It's draining. And as much as you and I might seek this breezy, beachy life, life is difficult. It's painful. It's hard. It hurts. We're sick. Our world is sick. Disease, aging, sickness, suffering, death. These are not realities that God intended when he made, made the world. As much as we might be told, oh, you know, death is natural and it's just a normal and beautiful part of being human. I'm sorry, but I say BS to that. I mean, to, to, to experience death and, and, and to experience with someone you like, you love, like I did this week with John Fisher, his three children, two sons and a daughter in their 20s. I have two sons and a daughter in their 20s. And to stand at that grave to watch that casket of someone you love descend into the earth. You know this is not natural. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Because deep in our hearts, we remember a garden that we are made to live forever. This is why Romans 8 spends so much time talking about all creation groaning as in the pains of childbirth. Uh, all creation is, is in this pain. It's in this agony. And this is the world that we live in. Not only are we alienated uh, from, from the world around us, but we're also alienated from each other. And we see this already in verse 12, where all of a sudden the blame game's going on, and Adam's blaming his wife, and you can sense the division. And then by the time you get to verse 16, God defines this division a little bit more. He says, I'll make your pains... Uh, He's saying this to the woman, I'll make your pains in childbearing very severe with painful labor. You'll give birth to children. And listen to this, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. That's all part of the curse. 
And you can just tell that we're a long way from the end of Genesis 2 where man and woman and husband and wife are united together as one. And that harmony now between husband and wife is shattered. They're alienated from each other. This alienation, as we are going to continue to read in Genesis 4 and 5, it's going to spill into their family. Conflict is going to ensue where brother is going to kill brother. Then it's going to spill into every family, every relationship. We're going to see that the genders are alienated. Races become alienated. Generations become alienated. And you know what? We don't have to read about that in our Bible. We can just look at the world around us. I mean, our world is convulsing right now. Nation against nation, race against race, gender against gender, generation against generation. And there's passion behind this division. There's enmity as we read about in Genesis 3 here. It's because we're banished. We're cut off. We're alienated. And this alienation too, I mean, it, it, it hits home. It becomes very personal because we also see that we're, we're cut off from our true self, that, that glorious self that was this perfect reflection of God. And now we're left with a self that's turned in on itself, this selfish self that's stuck inside of itself that can't get outside of itself. And I'd say in verse 8, we read some of the most devastating verses in the Bible. They heard God and they hid. I mean, such a pathetic sight, even to try to imagine it as God comes walking and, and they hide. And then you ask, well, why are they hiding from God? And verse 10 tells us the answer. They're hiding because they realize that they're naked. However, in just a few previous verses before this, we, we, we read that they were naked and unashamed. So what's changed? Well, they're cut off from their true self, which was this pure reflection of God himself. And they now have become alienated from the greatness and the glory which God made them to be, and they know it. And to me, this scene is so sad. I mean, you, you can just tell how inadequate Adam and Eve feel in this moment and the deep, deep shame that's, that's oozing from them. And they're doing everything they can to cover that inadequacy and to cover this deep shame of defilement that's deep within. Listen, the human race has been hiding ever since. This is why we cover, this is why we try really hard to control what other people can see because I think deep down that we know to be loved and accepted, we need to hide. And why do we think this way? Because we, we know deep down that we're cut off from our true self where, where we could once be real and authentic. And so now though we're afraid and in our insecurity, we, we hide and we present to other people this false self our whole culture is playing this game of fake right now. And just ask yourself, why? Because it's silly. Why can't we be real? Why can't we be authentic? Why are we constantly controlling what people see in us? 
It's because we have a deep sense of condemnation. And if you think I'm pushing this too far, let me just ask you some questions. Why is our culture then so obsessed with appearance and image? Why are we so performance-driven? Why are we such workaholics? Why can't we say no to people for fear that we're going to disappoint them? Why can't some of you date someone who you think is below you? Why are some of us such pleasers? Why are some of us such perfectionists? Why, when anything wrong goes in our life, do we feel this need to blame other people or other situations and play the victim? These are all fig leaves. We're trying to cover this sense of condemnation. And listen, if you're feeling shame today, and you're thinking to yourself, why is this happening to me? Listen, you're not alone. It's, it's the human condition. And we're all right now in the same boat. We're a long way from the garden. And as tragic as, as all of this is, the greatest consequence of sin is that humanity lost God. We lost him. In Genesis 3, verse 8, when it says God was walking, this whole text, walking in the cool of the day, both Jewish and Christian scholars say this is what Adam and Eve did every single day with God. When the, the heat of the day was over and that evening and the evening breezes came, then God came out and Adam and Eve got to walk with God every day. And like I said, walking is more than just a physical activity. It, it symbolizes deep friendship and intimacy. Libby and I are most married when we're out walking. Imagine walking with Christ every single day. In verse 24, when it said that they were drove out, that they were banished, this is when humanity lost God. We lost his presence. We lost his face. We lost walking with him in the cool of the day. And I don't think anything paints a, a picture of our alienation more than verse 22. Just look at it. Where they are not allowed to reach for the tree of life. Not allowed which is why we will never get the life that we want apart from God. We can never be satisfied apart from God. We can never know Eden apart from God. And yet, what are we still doing? We're all still reaching. We're reaching for the perfect job, the perfect life, the perfect spouse, the perfect family, the money, the house, the status. Why? Because we're reaching for the tree of life. We're reaching for the garden because we can't forget what we've been made for. And this is why when we actually get our hands on, on, on the thing that we think it's finally gonna satisfy us, whether it's true love or the perfect job or the dream house or more money, why always in the end, just give it enough time and it disappoints. It lets us down. I'll tell you why, listen to the Bible. We lost the garden. 
And this world, as much as we try to make it the garden, it will never be the garden. And until we understand that, we will be frustrated, disappointed, maybe even some of us angry, even at good things that come in our life, like work and marriage and family and relationships. Because what we're doing is we're asking for this world or a piece of this world to deliver what it can't. We right now live east of Eden. Do you know this? Just look around. I mean, just look how angry people are today. Look how frustrated they are. Look how disappointed they are. And then look even how, how they deal with their anger and their frustration and their disappointment. It's like Adam and Eve. People are still blaming. They blame their parents. They blame the government. They blame our culture. They blame circumstances. They blame their bosses. A lot of people even blame God. This is why we need to listen to our Bible. This is why we need to listen to Genesis 3 because it tells us that our problem is far deeper than these things, that we're actually alienated from God. We're alienated from each other. Our world is convulsing. It's hurting itself, turning on itself. It's destroying itself. And we can't forget the glory and the greatness for which we are made. Our hearts know that there is a tree and a God and a garden for which we are made. Do we even dare ask how this can be healed? How we can be restored, how we can be restored to the garden, the home for which we were made, the God for which we were made, to walk with God in the cool of the day? Well, that's what the rest of the Bible is about. But we also know this, if you know your Bible, the rest of the Bible is about Jesus. And when Jesus actually uh, comes to this world, he says, I am the temple and destroy this temple in three days and I will raise it up. And you have to understand, he wasn't just talking about a building. He's talking about something that represented the garden. And when he says this about himself, he's saying, I am the garden of God. And why would he say this? Well, well, think about this. To get back in the garden, what, what do you have in verse 24? It's not just you have to scale a wall or you have to push through a door. You actually have to push through a flaming sword. And the sword in the Bible always represents God's judgment. It represents his judgments, his justice. So the only way back into the garden is that someone will have to pass through God's justice God's justice demands, as we sung today, that someone must pay. Someone must pay for every wrong. Someone must pay for every injustice. Someone must pay for every sin. And Jesus came to the world, not only as the garden of God, but also as the priest to end all priests. Because what a priest does is not only just someone who takes care of the garden, who guards the garden, but a priest is someone who gets us back into the garden. And Jesus came to the world to do just that, to open the door to the garden. And he did it by passing through the flaming sword. He took the sword. He incurred the infinite cost of all our sin. He paid the price. He took the justice of God so that you and I could have the grace of God. 
And what the cross of Christ is about, it's about the great exchange. It's, it's where Jesus takes upon himself everything that we deserve so that we can be given everything that righteous Jesus deserves. But this is why on the cross, you see that Jesus, he lost the garden. Isaiah 53, it says he was cut off and on the cross, he was cut off. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and, and why, why was God being, or Jesus being cut off in that moment? It's so that you and I could be reconciled so we could be brought back in. This is why Jesus said, I'm the door, I'm the gate, I'm the way. He's the way back in. It's why Jesus on the cross is naked. He's utterly stripped naked. Why? He's bearing our shame and our condemnation so that you and I could be clothed in his righteousness, which is why Paul in Colossians 3 says that our life now is hidden in Christ. Which means the most amazing thing. When we're in Christ, hidden in him, we're no longer like Adam and Eve hiding in the bushes. We're hidden in him so that when God looks at us, it is as if he's looking at beautiful, righteous, glorious Jesus. See, all the alienation is healed in Christ, through Christ, the cross of Christ. And right now, as we prepare our hearts for communion, just want you to think about alienation. Think about someone right now that you might be alienated from right now, someone who's wronged you, someone who's hurt you. Tell me, how does that alienation get healed? It only gets healed through repentance and forgiveness. The one who's done the hurt needs to repent, and the one who's been hurt needs to forgive. And if you've ever forgiven someone who's hurt you, you understand how costly it is. It's expensive. Someone has to pay for that. Either you make that person pay by retaliating or you forgive them and then you incur the cost yourself. This is the price of all sin. And this is why Jesus on the cross prayed, Father, Forgive them. With those words, Jesus is destroying the alienation. He's opening the door to the garden. The question is, have you entered? Because the invitation is there. Through Jesus. He is the door. He is the gate. He is the way. And that's why we're celebrating communion this morning. This is more than us just commemorating something in our mind. It's us coming to the cross, bringing all the things that we need to repent of and taking in Jesus, who is the way back into the garden. My body broken for you. My blood shed for you. So God, as we prepare right now, God, may this not just be a formality. I pray, God, that great repentance would happen in this place.
And God, we could realize all that you're offering us right now. And God, with you, there's forgiveness. But even more than just forgiveness, God, through Jesus, we can get back into the garden. And so, God, I pray that we would come to you, to you, Jesus, this morning, that we'd place our life in you. And God, that we would experience the garden of the Lord. In your name we pray, amen.